0: wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey everyone, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, Episode 31. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Before we do that, I wanted to ask that if you find yourself enjoying the show, please take a minute and review it on iTunes. Just go to whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash iTunes and let me know what you think of the show. The ratings and especially reviews really help other people find the show in iTunes, so thank you for that. A few recent reviews I loved. Ron Lynn said, the podcast makes me want to read fiction again. Layflowers said, I have a very long TBR list after finding this podcast. That's to be read, if you don't know. There was a review that said my voice sounds fake and like a fabric softener ad. Sorry, I can't do much about that one. But seriously, thanks so much for taking the time to rate and review the show. I really appreciate it. Today's guest is Adam Verner. Get ready to die of envy, readers, because Adam reads for a living, literally. When he was a kid, and people asked him what he wanted to do when he grew up, he'd say read books. Because, well, a lot of us do, right? But he's actually doing it. Adam is a professional audiobook narrator who's narrated over two hundred books, everything from Finding Dory to Daily Rituals, Charles Martin to A Short Course on Beer, and pretty soon he'll be recording his first Danielle Steele novel. I love loved hearing more about Adam's interesting career, not just as a professional, but as someone who loves to read. He's a reader on his own time, too, and we dive deep into his somewhat melancholy favorites and probe just exactly why he hated a certain book so much. He literally threw it across the room for the first time since fourth grade. This one's a lot of fun. Let's get to it. Adam, welcome to the show
0: hello and thanks for having me and happy birthday
1: oh thank you well it is my pleasure and Adam it was actually your wife Leslie who emailed me and said I'm so excited about your podcast Mm. and I think you want to talk to my husband because you have a very interesting job that's the envy of I mean a lot of readers would kill to do what you do for (laughs) a living so explain to us a little bit about why Leslie thought you'd be such a great fit and why my audience would want to hear from you
0: all righty well I am an audiobook narrator uh, full-time by trade. I do mostly audio books. I do uh, some TV and radio commercials and other voiceover stuff as well. But the bulk of my time and uh, stuff is spent on audiobooks. books, um, which I came to from a theater acting background. Um, you know, got my undergrad degree in theater and a master's in acting and pursued storytelling in that way. And then realized uh, I could do my true love of reading books and somehow turn that into a living as well.
1: So you get paid to read for a living. I do. Well done. What was the first <laughs> audiobook you narrated? How did that come about?
0: Uh, the very first one was called Hood, which was a retelling of the Robin Hood story, but set in, I think it was 15th century England, um, as in the Normans are invading England. It was, it was, and he was Welsh. It was a bit of a retelling of the Robin Hood story, uh-huh. um, which made it challenging for my first book, because it was very long, you know, five, six hundred page book all with ancient Normans, ancient Welsh, ancient English, Celts, Scots, witches, you know, lots of characters. Um, that was by Stephen Lawhead, and I did the whole trilogy. That was my first three books uh, for a company called Oasis Audio, which is in Wheaton or just outside of Whedon, um, back in Chicago when I was there, and that's kind of back in 2005 or so. That's when I got my start. Mm-hmm. And then now, gosh, almost 10, 11, some years later, i uh, done over close to 230 books an hour or so.
1: Interesting. So did you know from the get-go that this is a very good idea and it's really going to work for me long-term?
0: I definitely knew it was what I wanted to do. It was tough to get used to from a a stamina point of view. I don't know if you've ever tried to sit in a um, warm padded box for eight hours a day talking to yourself.
1: Well, when you put it like that, it doesn't sound quite as appealing.
0: <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard. I mean, it's very it's very demanding of your energy and your stamina and your mental focus. You know, as an actor, I was trained to be, quote unquote, on, to be fully there and present and focused and emotionally vulnerable and all that stuff for maybe two hours for the run of a show.
1: Right.
0: Um, and this is, you know, six to eight hours a day, five days a week. Sometimes if it's a longer book or you got multiple books going on. So it's very, um, energy draining, but, you know, I grew up reading books. I grew up, um, listen, my, the, the long story is that my parents split up when I was young and my father, who was an actor, my parents were both actors, would send me cassette recordings of like the little golden books. If you remember those from back in the day, he would mail me these cassettes of him reading books. And that's what I would listen to as a young child. Uh Uh, we didn't have TV growing up, so I just, just read books and listened to my dad and as I got into high school and, and beyond, realized I want to tell stories, and theater at the time was the best way to do that. Uh, and it wasn't until I moved to Chicago after uh, undergrad that I realized audiobooks were a thing, even, um, and that, that someone could get paid to do them. So my, you know, people would ask me when I was young, oh, what do you want to do when you grow up, Adam? I'd say, read books. And they'd be like, oh, that's so cute. Yes.
1: Okay.
0: <laughs> um, but I proved them all wrong. So that's what I'm doing.
1: So how many hours a week do you spend reading audiobooks? And does that count as... Does that count as reading time for you? Are you reading a book for the <clears throat> first time when you narrate it? Or do you need to read it through a time or six before you're mm-hmm. ready to record it for everybody else's ears?
0: Well, it's a full-time job, so I try and spend, you know, again, it's as anyone who's self-employed, it's always flexible, but I try and spend, you know, a 9 to 5, 40 hours a week in the, in the office slash recording studio. Mm-hmm. Um, not all of that is actual recording because there is prep time. You do have to read the book through once. The deadlines being what they are, there's no way that, Anyone ever has a chance to read the book more than once, mm-hmm. especially if they're doing what they call simultaneous release, where if it's a new book, they want the audiobook, of course, to come out, hit the shelves or whatever, be downloadable on the exact same day the book comes out. Mm-hmm. So, and the audiobook, in, in terms of the publishing industry, sometimes they put that off and put that off. And then it comes down to like three weeks before the book's released. And they're like, oh, yeah, we need to record an audiobook. So they call me or, you know, some people like me and are like, how soon can you get this back to us? So it's a lot of, sometimes it can be very crazy deadlines. So the process varies whether it's fiction or nonfiction, but um, in both genres, you do need to read through the book, you know, all the way because you don't know what's coming. There's always all these horror stories that narrators will share of, you know, if you start a book without reading it first and it's like a mystery or something, it's maybe only at the end of the book that the author reveals that this character had an Irish accent Oh through, no!
1: <laughs> or something like that. So you're um, looking for details that maybe the casual reader is not or the yes. serious reader who's not exactly. in charge of narrating this thing.
0: Yeah. Anyway. There's all sorts of things that come into play. So when, you, when we, most of us read fiction, we write down character prep things because if the author's good, they'll say things like she said in a husky voice and her voice sounded like, you know, a violin at dawn or some." So all of these descriptive <laughs> words that help us as actors to, to decide what these characters are going to sound like mm-hmm. um, and make all those decisions ahead of time. And nonfiction, most of the time, there's all sorts of crazy words you need to look up. Um, The one I just finished was this very long 17 finished hour uh, history book on the history of the Everglades called The Swamp, which is really fascinating if you're into history. But it had, you know, all sorts of because all the way back to the ancient conquistadors and their names and Native American names and chief who's it, chief what's it and place name. I mean, just reams of research. I have a spreadsheet a mile long of all the stuff I had to look up. Um, and know how to say before I start reading it. That's kind of the process, but I do that, yeah, all week.
1: Okay, so what's the rough rule of thumb? How long does it take you to read? In An hour reading equals how many pages of audiobook?
0: The general rule, they say, that people use in the industry is it's about 10,000 words. Some people use 9,300, but uh-huh. say 9,500 9, to 10,000 words or so per finished hour of audio. So to make the math easy, if you have a 50,000-page book, you can estimate that's going to be five finished hours of audio. And most experienced narrators can record at what we call a two-to-one ratio, at least, mm-hmm. meaning two hours of recording for every hour of finished audio, because that includes breaks, uh, mistakes when you have to stop and back up, sneezes, you know, anything that interrupts recording. So it's about a two-to-one ratio. You know, I can, I can do 1.5 to 1 easily.
1: Interesting. Now, reading down on audible right now when i search your name it, mm-hmm. it gives me 187 results yep. and we have everything from finding nemo and finding dory to mason curry's daily rituals which i just love and mm. a whole lot of fiction um like there's some charles martin here on the first page there's uh non mm. books like smart fat and the beginner's guide to investing yeah what what stands out in your mind is some of your favorite books you've narrated over the years
0: I have a soft spot for fiction because of my acting background. It involves it allows you to really dig into the characters and get into um, the minds of them. Some of my favorite books um, years ago, I was lucky enough to get, Do you know, Pearl S. Buck. She wrote The Good Earth. Yes. So I didn't do The Good Earth, unfortunately, (laughs) but uh, which is what most people know of hers. But she actually wrote a lot of other books. And there's two sequels to The Good Earth called uh, Sons and a house divided and i got mm-hmm. to do those two, as well as two others of hers called dragon seed and pavilion of women and just the like just the kind of like dense literature that she writes you know cuz a lot of those older books they they were already produced in audiobooks mm-hmm. you know 30 years ago there's not a chance to do a lot of those um those were amazing uh in terms of young adult there's some really fun young adult stuff i did recently called the terrible two by John Jory and Mark Bennett, I think are the names. Um, Great for teens, for any listeners who have kids or teens. And then the sequel just came out that we did called The Terrible Two Get Worse.
1: So what makes that so much fun for you as a reader?
0: There's a lot more freedom in the voices, which is for a similar reason why I like fantasy. I did one recently, you know, where there's demons and there's dragons and there's these wizards whose voices are described as steel, you know, steel wrapped in flame. (laughs) Okay, um,
1: tell me that it's nice outside in a voice that sounds like steel wrapped in flame.
0: <laughs> it's nice outside.
1: <laughs> Very nice.
0: <laughs> so yeah, those are just a lot of fun to do because there's just more, you know, in a, in contemporary realistic fiction, obviously, you need to do contemporary realistic voices. Uh-huh. But in sci-fi and fantasy and teens, you know, it's just it's just a bigger playground is the way to think of it. Um, I also love doing memoirs because it's someone's personal story um there was one i did called all the wrong places by oh, i'm blanking on his name right now but he also wrote a book called fire season that was about he was a writer living in a fire tower you know being a fire watchman in some national park for a couple summers um so people's stories um there was a book called growing up amish that was about a, a man who grew up amish and then left mm-hmm. the faith and his struggles and all his stuff with that so, you know, there's a lot of, there's so much meaning in someone's personal story that it's just not that it's better or worse. It's just different than fiction, you know. Uh-huh. So that's really it's such an honor to inhabit someone, someone's uh, words like that if they're not able to narrate it themselves for whatever reason.
1: Do you use a different voice for a memoir than you would for something like The Beginner's Guide to Investing?
0: Not really. No. You know, you, um, as we, we say in the industry that when you're recording nonfiction or memoir or biography or anything like that, mm-hmm. you're playing one character and that is the character of the author. Mm-hmm. So, but you're, that's kind of as through the lens of you, you know, you have to inhabit that character as best you can, but there's no reason to change your voice because I'm obviously I'm getting cast in these things because I have a slightly younger, you know, I'm not a 60 year old man sounding voice. If mm-hmm. it was, it would cast a 60 year old man. <laughs> so they're already ca- casting me somewhat appropriately, I guess that's the way to say it.
1: Okay. Now you read 40 hours a week for your job. How has that impacted your personal, non-professional reading life?
0: (laughs) Good question. Um, I I will say I probably read more. I don't know if that's true because I didn't read during, you know, when I had a quote-unquote regular day job or was in school, uh, the same conflicts applied. I definitely read a little less now than I did before, you know, I was married and have two toddlers and another one on the way. (laughs) Um, Because when I'm reading during the day, during the work day, it's pretty much I'm the book I'm reading is the next book I'm recording. I'm prepping uh-huh. the next book. Um, right now I'm prepping a book of... Uh, it's a, a Christian nonfiction called A Mile Wide by uh, Brandon Hatmaker, Jen Hatmaker's uh-huh. husband. Yeah. Um, and it's a nonfiction book he wrote about his faith. So I'm prepping that while I'm recording a book of sci-fi short stories by Jack Campbell. <laughs> um, but, you know, I always make it a point every time I take a lunch break, I prep a little bit, drink some coffee, eat lunch, and then I read... The book I'm currently reading for pleasure, which, as I mentioned to you, is now Zero K by Don DeLillo. Um, So I read a little bit of that. So, you know, I know I read less books per year now, probably than I did five years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's just a season of life thing, I think.
1: Interesting. Okay. well, it's great to get a little peek behind the scenes. Okay, Adam, you know how this works. So on mm-hmm. the show, you tell me three books you love, one book you hate, and what you've been reading lately, and we talk about what you should read next. All right. For your own sake, and not for a paycheck, <laughs> what, what are you reading right now? Let's start with your favorites. What's a book you love?
0: Um, top books I love. My, my number one book of all time would probably be, be close between these two books. The first one is called Silence by Shusako Endo, mm-hmm. Japanese writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second would be My Name is Asher Lev by Chaim Potak, who's okay. a Hasidic, Hasidic Jewish writer. And the third would be Pilgrim at Tinker Creek by Annie Dillard.
1: Of all the books you've read, I mean, probably thousands of books you've read professionally mm-hmm. and non, what sets those three apart? How did they make your favorites list?
0: <sighs> um, the first two for me, Silence and My Name is Asher Lev, because they're these deep, deep stories of someone's internal struggle with kind of working out their faith with how it reacts to the world around them. Um, very different ways in these two books. In Silence, it's a book about... Uh, takes place in the s- late 1700s, I believe. I forget the exact dates, but it's when the, um, some of the original Jesuit missionaries were kicked out of Japan and really um, persecuted and tortured and killed for, for their faith. And um, all based on real historical letters and events and things like that. So I guess you could even call it historical fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, but the main character is a priest who has to decide, like, what's the you know, best thing to do here? Because they would make these um, natural Japanese believers, converted believers, as well as uh, priests uh, kind of recant by trampling on this image of Jesus that they call, and I'm going to mangle the pronunciation, the Fumi, F-U-M-I. Mm-hmm. Which was an Im- image of Jesus on a board, and they would have to you know symbolically trample his face in order to recant their faith. So I don't want to give away the ending, but the struggle of that uh, you know, what is the best way to minister to people in a situation like that, and how important are the words of your faith, or just to go deeper than that? So and I, he's one of the authors that once I read that back in I think that was in, I think that was actually assigned for a religious studies class in undergrad. I went and read everything else he's written. Which is great because it's just now being a lot of it is just now being translated into English. Every year, there's a new book out that's you know actually thirty forty years old that they're just now translating. Mm-hmm.
1: I did not realize that's what the book is about.
0: Okay. Yeah, he's he's an amazing writer, and all of his books are very thematically similar. He's mm-hmm. not one of those writers that can write you know wildly different books. Like their his whole corpus of work is almost almost just one book, exploring slightly different variations of the same topic, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting. And then, but in a similar way, my name is Asher Lev. It's about this kid growing up in a very, you know, strict Hasidic Jewish uh, society and culture. um, Who, but has this gift for painting and art? And it's again, it's that struggle between, uh, you know, I want to like be true to this art, but there's many ways in which this conflicts with the culture of my faith and the world I live in right now. And that struggle um, is just so powerful to me. And again, I went and read every other book. Chaim Potok has written. He wrote The Chosen which it made into a movie years. Is that
1: years. the one about baseball?
0: Yes. That's okay. Uh, yeah. So that uh, if people know him, they know him from The Chosen, which is a good book too. And then uh, Annie Dillard, you know, that's uh, in a different genre. I have this passion for nature writing, nonfiction, I guess, um, or stories of exploration, or wilderness or survival. Mm-hmm. Um, and Annie Dillard kind of perfectly enca- encapsulates that with her nature essay writing. Um, and I love all of her books, but I picked this one because it was, I think, probably the first one I read.
1: What do you think about her more recent work?
0: Well, th- there isn't really. I mean, the bo- are you talking about the book that just came out?
1: I'm just wondering because I love Pilgrim at Tinker Creek and have read it numerous times And her older writing. But what she's written in the last 10, 15 years has been much less accessible to me. And Hmm. I haven't opened, I have her new one, but I haven't cracked the cover yet because it's, it just feels, (laughs) I'm a little afraid to find, to find out what's going to happen when I start reading.
0: Well, I I was kind of disappointed because I picked it up in the bookstore and was like, you know, there's no question I'm going to buy this. And then I looked at the table of contents and it's, it's just everything republished. There's actually nothing new in the book. Everything in the book, as far as I could tell, was pulled from a previous collection. And I've read everything of her, so I've already read all those things. So I didn't Oh,
1: that's heartbreaking. I've I know. Seen, I saw the essays that said Annie Dillard finally has a new release coming out. She hasn't been writing as fast. And, and I, I'm, oh. <laughs> well, that's just very sad. I know. Well, I, I mean, won't feel as bad about putting it off, though, now.
0: Yeah, it was disappointing. And the subtitle, I think, says something like Essays Old and New. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I take this with a grain of salt because I didn't sit down and read it. Maybe she updated or mm-hmm. edited some of the essays. I'm mm-hmm. not sure. But I, you know, I poked through a few of them and line for line was like, I remember this from uh, for the time being or Mm -hmm. uh, teaching a stone to talk. Um, I mean, some of her stuff is she's one of those writers that like, especially in some of her fiction, like the Maytrees, Mm -hmm. which I loved. But you could tell uh, some writers get so good at language that they end up turning off, they end up like being inscrutable in a way.
1: <laughs> that was a very tactful way to put that.
0: <laughs> you know, it's like I can see the, the, and I read somewhere in an interview that she wrote The Matrix, which is a short book, maybe uh-huh. 150, 200 at the most. It was originally like 900 pages, and she like paired and paired and cut down and cut down to get to this essence of truth and language, which I admire. But what you end up then is just something that can be a little opaque at times. Mm-hmm. Um, her other fiction, uh, The Living... I think much longer book, a little more historical fiction. I liked better in terms of fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, but her other stuff, all, you know, there's essays here and there that I'm like, you know, oh, that's, that's a little more impenetrable, but overall, I just love it.
1: Okay. Now tell us a little bit about Pilgrim since listeners have to wait till next week to get my take mm-hmm. on it and how it landed on your list.
0: Oh gosh, how did it land? On my... That's a good question. I have no memory of how she ended up on my radar.
1: Or how about, how does she earn her place in your top three of all time? Because a lot of readers are afraid to go for top three picks of all time. They find it way too intimidating to narrow it down for a lifetime. Mm. So they'll limit themselves to the past year.
0: Right, right, right. But for
1: a pilgrim to land on your all-time list, how did it earn (laughs) its place?
0: Well, I think because she is such an uh, incredible observer, like period. She can take, you know, something as simple as watching a moth bump against a window pane, or circle a candle um and write this long essay about it with that somehow has something to do with love and loss and the meaning of life you know and all these things all compacted into these really um imagistic is that a word but like very image mm-hmm. heavy saturated mm-hmm. language um i would recommend for people who don't know annie dillard or maybe scared off uh her one book i think it's um I think it's in teaching a stone to talk or for the time being. I don't remember which book it's in, but there's an essay called the weasel. Um, that is like, again, it's just, she sat on a log and saw a weasel. Like that's, that's, that's that's what happens in the essay. But then she reflects on it. And it's just amazing. I mean, if we had time, I would just narrate the whole essay to you, but that also might be illegal for copyright (laughs) reasons. I don't know. Um, we'll keep you out of trouble. Yeah. Um, yeah, like, that's probably my favorite piece of hers. Um, if you want to just pick that up at a library and read that and see if you want to read the rest of her stuff.
1: I do. That um, makes me want to go find that essay immediately. I mean, I know, yeah. I hope everybody else picks it up, too. But, yeah, I haven't hmm. read Pilgrim for 10 years, and I can still recall in vivid detail her images because she does have the power of just really compactly describing something that sticks with you. Like the tree mm-hmm. with the lights in it. I could tell you yeah. all about the tree with the lights in it. Ooh.
0: Well, I'm anxious to listen to this other uh, podcast or the other episode where you talk about it more.
1: <laughs> There's a spoiler. I think nobody else has known a uh, what the selections are going to be in advance. But oh. yeah, readers, that's coming. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, Adam, change of pace. Tell us about a book you hated recently.
0: Um, all right. So last year, I had a very um, visceral response to a book. It's the only, it's the second book in my life I can remember literally throwing across the room. Like, when I finished it. Wow. What um, was the first one? <laughs> uh, White Fang, when I was in fourth grade, by really? Jack London. Really? Be- I was so upset at the treatment of the dogs <sighs> that I just couldn't handle it, and I threw the book across the room. Okay. Um, and so this many book, years later. Many years later. Um, this book I felt so betrayed by. It's called The People in the Trees, mm-hmm. and I'm going to butcher pronunciation of your name. I'm sorry. Uh, it's a woman, Hanya Yanagahara, I yes. think, is how it looks like, at least. Um, and here's why I felt betrayed. The writing is wonderful. She's a super talented, amazing writer, and I was drawn in immediately. Um, it's about uh, it takes place in the '60s, '50s, '60s kind of spans of time. spans quite a bit of time. But a, a researcher uh, attached to Stanford, or one of these these big universities on the East Coast, he's making these trips to this mainly undiscovered um, tropical island in the South Pacific somewhere. Fictional, probably, but that genre. And there's a tribe of people, mysterious people there that, you know, he wants to study. And it really reminded me of a book called state of wonder by yes, Ann Patchett.
1: I was just thinking that it is very interesting. What you just said, because of two connections, first of all, um, a little life by the same author, the second novel has gotten so much buzz this year. And it's mm. also been accused, not accused, been very frankly acknowledged to have, I think the time said it has like as many triggers as the Texas gun show. just approach with caution. So that's interesting that you mentioned that. Um, but interestingly, when I had Amy Johnson on in episode 30, so I think that's just last week. If you're listening now, she, the book she hated was state of wonder. And the reason she hated it was she got to four pages from the end and characters made some decisions she was not expecting. And she felt like you know, I thought I knew you for almost 300 pages and I get to the end and she used the word like you did betrayed. Like, hmm. I don't know you at all. I don't understand your choices. I I feel like even if I don't like what you did, I should be able to understand what you did. And I'm not okay with the book. And I, you know, she says she enjoyed the book, but just felt like she was led to a place and took a sharp turn and just really felt betrayed. So it's yeah. interesting that you compared it because it's also interesting. Apparently, I can't stop using that word. Um, <laughs> but that you compared it to State of Wonder, and then this other reader had such a similar reaction to huh. to that book as you did to this one.
0: Well, yeah, that's very fascinating because there has to be some kind of inspired by thing going on there because State of Wonder is about a researcher, you know, finding a tribe of people deep in the forest who have this special ability because, like, the, those plot points are almost identical. So. <sighs> When I first started reading People of the Trees, that kind of bothered me. Mm-hmm. But again, she's a good enough writer that it, that stopped mattering. Um, and I read State of, when I read State of Wonders years ago, I don't remember feeling betrayed. I do remember thinking the twist at the end, like I, like I met, like you said, I might have disagreed with the character, but I didn't have this kind of visceral gut reaction
1: mm-hmm.
0: that I had to People the Trees. No books were thrown. No books okay. were thrown. Yes.
1: Okay. <laughs> Interesting. All right. Adam, what are you reading right now?
0: I'm reading a couple books. So there's Zero K, which Mm -hmm. is Don DeLillo's new one Mm -hmm. Uh, for pleasure for work. I'm uh, I just got cast in the new Danielle Steele novel uh, called The The Award. I know I've never read any Danielle Steele, Um, but her new book is coming out um, sometime later in September, I think or so. But Uh uh, so I got cast in that, which I haven't read yet. I haven't started yet, but it's set in 1940s France. So kind of World War II era France. So I think there's going to be some spy romance stuff going on there. I looked. I looked it up. She's the fourth best-selling author of all time. Holy smokes! Really? It goes. It goes Shakespeare, Agatha Christie, and then one I hadn't heard of, Barbara Candle, Canter. Another romance, an English oh, romance know, yeah. writer. Um, and then Danielle Steele. Yeah, number four I knew of all she time. Was
1: big, but I didn't know she was that big. Now, yeah. are you? Will you be one of many narrators?
0: Not on this one. Um, sometimes that happens. If Especially if chapters switch focus, Uh like one chapter is from a man's perspective and then other chapters from a woman's perspective. But this one is, um, it's just me. And in in this one, like they do sometimes, they'll actually be recording, we'll we'll be recording it twice. The unabridged version and the abridged version because it's kind of long. So this is one of the rarances where I'll actually get to record through it twice.
1: Interesting. Um, So that's not just edited down. That's a totally different read.
0: At least for this book it is. I think... Depending on how they do the abridgment, if they're just cutting out whole whole chapters, maybe they can do that in post-production. But uh-huh. I know for a lot of abridgments, they're literally removing sentences here, sentences there, splicing things together. So there's just no way to, you know, edit that without uh-huh. sound, without it sounding bad.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Um, so I'm starting to prep that one and reading Zero K, by, which is my first Don DeLillo. Do you, have you, are you familiar with him or have you read any of his stuff?
1: I haven't read his work. What inspired you to pick that one up?
0: Uh, the subject, actually, because I've heard his name, you know, I know he's a well-known writer, um, but had never really had a reason to read him. And then somewhere, probably a Goodreads email I got, uh-huh. they they featured his book and said that it was kind of about uh, cryonics, which is the uh, sub-zero preservation of the human body, or just your head, <laughs> in, ho- in, in hope of a future resurrection. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit of a sci-fi And I I love reading sci-fi and fantasy. I I tend to veer toward a lot of that stuff, especially for my reading in my own time. So I was like, oh, if I'm going to, you know, ever try a Don DeLolo book, this is a good time to do it. And I'm about halfway through it. And it's, speaking of Annie Dillard (laughs) Dillard impenetrableness, it's a little bit that way. I mean, he uses language so uniquely and so adroitly and so unexpectedly, while I admire it technically, it's, it's a little hard to get into. Like, I'm halfway through the book, and something has just happened for the first time. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, it's one of those slower-moving, very contemplative, very almost mystical books. So I, the jury's still out as to whether I'm going to like it. Uh, but so far, it, it's it's interesting enough; it's, it's keeping my interest. You know, this these days, as old as I am, uh, and as little time as I have to read, if I. I'm not drawn in by a book in the first couple chapters. I just abandon it. I'm I'm not going to push, you know, make myself finish a book Mm -hmm. if I'm not liking it. Okay. But this one, this one I want to finish, so.
1: Okay. So that's, it's at least, we have a little bit of your idea then of a verdict. Adam, is there anything you want to be different in your reading life?
0: I'm sure, like everyone says, more time. I know. No magic
1: wands Um, involved here.
0: (laughs) You know, kind of as I mentioned, because I have so little time to read for pleasure these days, when I do pick up books, I like I said, I tend to veer toward page-turning sci-fi, and I, I blazed through the Red Rising trilogy that I know you've recommended or talked about. Um, John Scalzi's Old Man's War mm-hmm. books, um, cause, just because they they keep my attention and they're you know they're much more likely to pick them up and read them. Um, whereas authors and books like Silence and My Name Is Asher Lev, these are books that are on my top time, my uh, all-time favorite list, but they're ones I read you know ten, twelve years ago. So I would love to find or be recommended an author who I can do what I did with them, which is go read everything they've written because I want to, you know, like they're that good um, and they're that deeply impactful. Because the books that I tend to read these days, they keep my attention and I love them, but they're not replacing these top three books, right? Because they're just not that meaningful to my life as a whole, which is a tall order, I guess.
1: <laughs> that. It is that it is that the change your life kind of books don't come along every single day. Yeah. (laughs) Excellent. All right. I'm up for the challenge. I can't wait to hear what you think of them. We will get right to it after the break. All right. Welcome back, Adam. Let's talk about your books. All right. First of all, I really admire that you had the guts to choose your top three of all time. Was that something you already knew or did you need to sit down and ponder?
0: I, I knew it off the top of my head because people have asked me that for so many years that, those have been my top three for the last probably ten years, and nothing has supplanted those in the last ten years.
1: Do you hang out with bookish people, or is that a professional habit um, that people ask you big superlative reading questions? I mean,
0: most audiobook narrators are book geeks. You know, that's that's why they're in this industry, mm-hmm. and that's you kind of have to be to spend you know six to eight hours a day locked in a closet talking to yourself. You have to love literature. So most of these people are book geeks. So yeah, I spend a lot of time talking with them about books. My wife Leslie Verner um reads like a fiend and she also writes at scrapingraisins.blogspot.com about life and motherhood and uh faith and countercultural um stuff like that. So yeah, it's uh, my my life is a lot of, <laughs> has a lot to do with books right now.
1: All right, so you, so you have to come prepared with an answer for that. I don't think I'm noticing anything about your picks that you don't already know because you seem mm-hmm. to be able to articulate very well and be self-aware about what it is you like. But you do have you have books that are Well, I was going to say sweeping in scope, but I don't know if that's fair. Mm. I'm just, I'm bearing my lead. I want to get to the part where I get to say that they have this gloomy kind of melancholy intensity. Um, So we have plotting, even with Annie Dillard, we have plotting and she's a lot more structured, I think, than people Mm -hmm. notice. She carries you along with where she wants to take you. Um, But yeah, you have these powerful plots that really get at life's big questions. And I love that you threw in that you like the good adventure stories. And I might have been tempted to go a little loftier for you if you hadn't thrown in that you want an author where you are just really tempted to go on a big reading binge and read everything they've ever written in a very condensed span of time. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So I'm also afraid because you read 40 hours a week for a living that you've read everything I can think of (laughs) for you. So we'll see how this goes.
0: (laughs) There's a lot of books out there. So we'll
1: see. There's a lot of books. Uh Uh-huh. But, well, yeah, I'm still a little bit nervous. Okay, first of all, have you read any Graham Greene?
0: I did read one a long time ago that I can't remember the title of now. Um, But I know who he is, yes.
1: Okay, excellent. In that case... We are going to go for your book one with The End of the Affair by Graham Greene. And here's something that is probably only fun mm. to me and the listeners about recommending this to you. This is one of the best audiobooks I've ever listened to. Okay, so Graham Greene is a great okay. starter audiobook for anybody who is willing to tackle. Like, it's on The Guardian's best hundred novels of the century list. Um, this is, it's not a light reading, but it's easy to listen to. Mm. And I... Uh, I think it's so ironic that i've apparently picked an audiobook that taps right into the zeitgeist with colin firth being the narrator nice and the end of the affair is well it's narrated by colin firth who uh the narrator in green story is a second rate novelist who's hmm. british named morris bendrix and so firth just seems perfectly positioned to be in this role Green wrote some very popular works that he called his entertainments, like The Third Man, and then he wrote some very serious uh, Catholic novels. And this kind right. of blurs the line between the two. It's called The End of the Affair. I wondered why. It's because it's very literal. first character, the narrator, was having a torrid affair with a, not a friend exactly, an acquaintance's wife that came up professionally. He wanted to know a little bit about... I think it was a he wanted to know a little bit about a government employee, just what mm. his life would be like because he wanted to write such a character in his novel, and he got to know his wife and two years later, this affair it has is ruining everyone's lives, and the wife breaks it off very suddenly, and this mm. is probably on the jacket copy if you're actually reading a book with a jacket and not staring <clears throat> at your iPhone <clears throat> and so he is on a mission to find out why so okay. some critics think that the ending has not aged well but it's set in Wartime London a lot of the big action happens during the blitz it's it's aged hmm. very well and is something i hm if you read this would you read it would you listen to Colin Firth or would you pick up a novel that you can hold um, in your hands
0: i would most likely pick up the book because these days there's very little time for me to listen to audiobooks actually uh-huh. um when we are when my wife and I go on road trips or for driving to Chicago from Colorado, we have these, you know, long hours in the car. That's when I really try and get some audio books in there that I want to listen to. Um, But right now, I definitely pick up the book because I've I've, I've heard a lot about him. And I know that he's, you know, widely considered a great author. Um, So yeah, I will definitely check that out.
1: Okay, interesting. Mm -hmm. I, um, of course, don't get to assign you homework. but I'd be interested in your take on the A-list, but I can totally Hmm. see how um, it goes a lot faster when you're reading on paper too.
0: Okay. I will check it out.
1: Okay. Book two, have you read, have you heard of anything by Sebastian Junger? The Perfect Storm is the one I have in mind for you.
0: The, The Perfect Storm, does that have anything to do with the movie by the same name?
1: The movie is based on the book. Yes. Okay. The George Clooney movie that came out 20 years ago, maybe.
0: Right. I have not read anything by him.
1: Okay. So he's a journalist. I believe he was freelancing at the time he wrote this. He wrote for Outside Magazine for years. I'm not sure what his association is now uh, professionally, mm. but this is his true story of the storm of the century, which huh. took place off the coast of Nova Scotia in 1991. So the movie wasn't didn't come out terribly long after it was released. Um, in this nonfiction book, Jünger weaves together the tales of the fishing crew aboard this doomed Uh, fishing boat off the coast of Nova Scotia and also the dramatic rescue of a three-person crew aboard a a yacht in the Atlantic just manned by a a family. And it's a very compelling and page turning tale of man versus nature. And it's called the perfect storm, um, not because uh, it's in the meteorological sense perfect means it could not possibly have been any worse so it was a hundred year storm just created by a very rare combination of factors three already bad storms came together and blew up and one of the things that i found so compelling about this is humor goes into great um, meteorological and practical detail about what exactly that means like what causes hurricane gale winds and what does it feel like to experience them? And in the uh, novel, or I just called it a novel, it <laughs> reads like a novel. So that's probably yeah. a good sign. In the book, you know from the outset everyone's fates. But okay. what Junger does is he's interviewed other people who have survived other storms so he can tell you what they perceived it to be like to be in a boat, like falling nearly a hundred feet with every wow. crest of the waves and the water. And he goes into detail about the prayer rescue teams from the New York state air national guard that like spare no expense to go save these people who end up in these horrible situations, like that little yacht crew on the Satori. And he interweaves his narrative with the uh, the history of Gloucester, this little new England fishing village that hmm. the, fishing boat set out from and the New England fishing industry in general. And that is just really interesting, especially if you know nothing about that, like me, just to talk about, uh, what the life was like and how people tended to get into the work. And of course this sounds so cliche, but the superstitions surrounding going out on a big voyage, I mean, a multi (laughs) week voyage and sometimes many months to catch fish is just fascinating. How does that sound to you?
0: That sounds definitely up my alley. I love, um, I, I've read a lot of similar books about uh, survival. They tend to focus around Ant- Arctic or Antarctic exploration, you uh-huh. know, and all of the tra- the catastrophes that happen with that. But that, I've read a couple other books about shipwrecks, you know, about, um, oh, what was the one about the true story behind uh, Mutiny and the Bounty? Oh, interesting. Um, that, the true story, I forget the name of the book now. Something about the heart of the sea in the heart of the sea. Anyway, but it was the true story about that and some whaling, you know, books about whalers and stuff. They've, so, yeah, that sounds right up my okay. alley.
1: So this isn't a big departure for you. No, no, and not And he's at all. been everywhere recently, Jünger has, because mm. he just had a new hardcover come out. I think the end of May. But mm. so if you've if you're listening, if you've heard his name lately, that could very well be why. OK, mm. so I have kind of an oddball pick for your third. But if you love it, you're really going to love it. <laughs> OK, OK. It's the Starbridge series by Susan Howatch. Are you familiar with the series or with the author, who's probably best known for Wheel of Fortune?
0: Not at all. You said Star Ridge?
1: Star Bridge.
0: Bridge. It doesn't word. sound familiar at all.
1: I mean, this is one that either it's for you or it's not. You're going to hmm. love it or you're going to hate it. So we have the Church of England in the early 1930s. Like, that's where your cast of characters is drawn from. It's said among the, it's been a while since I've read this, so I'm going to botch the names, but you have your bishops and your, what are the other characters? You have uh, your hierarchy of okay, religious officials. And... Yes, doing okay. battle and making power plays and trying to rise in the ranks. And so there's a whole lot of religion. There's also a whole lot of sex and a whole lot of psychological <laughs> probing, drama, huh. lots of complicated relationships. The first book is called Glittering Images. It is set in the 1930s. And yeah. the first three books of the series are all set pretty much back to back in the early 30s. And the latter three books of the series take place in the 60s. Each book stands on its own, but like some other series that you might be familiar with, like Tana French's Dublin Murder Squad, not, probably not up your alley, Adam, but it comes <laughs> immediately to mind. Each book is narrated by a different character. They stand independently, but you feel like you rotate the prism and get the whole perspective of another individual who might have seen things totally differently than the person who narrated the previous stories. But they do all stand on their own. Glittering Images is the first book. And the glittering images of the title are the shiny, happy, together, successful facades that these church um, officials, I guess is what you would call them present Mm. to the world. So they're charismatic, they're successful. They look perfectly together and ho watch goes behind the scenes and unmasks that and puts them into situations that would challenge, I guess, even a bishop (laughs) will say. (laughs) So you do not have to be religious in any sense to enjoy these. I'm sure plenty of people loved, like The Thorn Birds, which is set in the Church of Rome, and it has that similar kind of sweeping feel, except Ho-Watch's six books probably add up to just barely over as many pages as a book like The Thorn Birds had. Ho-Watch has a very fast-moving story, but she is probing human nature and the big questions of life. How does that sound to you?
0: That sounds interesting. Um, Yeah, I've never heard of her. So it, I just, you know, looked up the the first book, Glittering Images, on Amazon, and it doesn't look at first blush like a book I might pick up instinctually. But I love getting surprised like that, so I will give it a try, and I will let you know what I think.
1: We'll see how that goes. <laughs> okay, Adam, what do you think you'll read next?
0: I might pick up The Perfect Storm next just because I haven't, It's even though I love that genre, I haven't read a good nature book like that in a little bit. So that, that's probably what I'm going to pick up next. Yeah, I also have, I mentioned, uh, H is for Hawk, another kind of nature book that's, uh, I have a copy of that sitting on my to-read shelf that's um, going to work its way in there soon.
1: That one seems very much at home among the titles that you've you've chosen.
0: That seems, yeah, because I, I, I try not to buy a lot of books these days because I'm just overwhelmed with them. Mm-hmm. I just get them from the library, but mm-hmm. that's one I, I bought because just, I just think I'm going to like it, so I just bought it.
1: <laughs> Excellent. That's one that I thoroughly enjoyed, but I don't think I'm the only reader who, read that just a couple pages at a time and that's not usually how I read it all usually I'm like if Mm. the book is good then I'm going to keep going tonight but I just couldn't do it with that one what I'm saying is that could have been very expensive and overdue fines if you read it the same way the purchase may have been a (laughs) wise price true true well I can't wait to hear what you think about those thanks so much for talking books with me today
0: thank you for having me on it was wonderful and happy reading
1: Hey readers. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Adam today. Please head to the podcast site to share your recommendations for what Adam should read next. That page is at what should I read next podcast.com slash 31. That's the numerals three one. And it's also where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. We'll be back next Tuesday with another great episode, this time with a reader an ocean away from me. It turns out living as an American expat in London sounds really glamorous. This guest also chose a book previous guests have gushed about as the book she hated. This is what she says. I found the romance a little sappy for my taste. I found I didn't really like the main characters. The relationship that they have, their friendship seems pretty far-fetched to me. And he's like kind of a jerk too at the beginning. I just was a little bit eh about it, Mm -hmm. which is interesting because so many people just adore it. More to come next week. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading everyone. At a time when change is constant, and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician
0: to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have.